Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this podcast. We've got the NBA Finals, we've got a special guest, what more can you ask for, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 12 of The Bridge. Well, happy Sunday, everyone. I guess I should actually say happy early Monday morning, this now being June 8th, 2015, coming to you almost immediately after game two of the NBA finals between the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors. What a series it's been and what a series it could have been or could be. We'll get into that a little bit later in the show, but it's exciting that we have a guest among us. He's actually about three and a half feet away from me currently, but because I don't have a second microphone, he is unable to come on and sound a little bit better. He could sit on my lap, but this table is a little bit higher because I had it boosted with a couple boxes for my height, so I don't know if he'd be able to reach the microphone, but we could try that out maybe later if things don't work out right. Of course, referring to a good friend of mine, a best friend, a friend for years. It's been a long time. Met on a trip to Italy. We ate together. We slept together. We sweated together. Made a lot of great decisions. Made a lot of great memories. Became closer as friends, as brothers. Eddie Ocasio, as his Twitter refers to himself, the original Puerto Rican sensation. Not to be confused with those fake Twitter accounts out there. He sets the record straight. I'm still looking for my blue check mark from Twitter to be verified as the original Puerto Rican sensation. Well, maybe that's on its way. Do you have to fill out a form or anything for that? I think they'll contact me. They know who I am. Well, they should. For those of you out there who don't, you follow me at Captain Edo. You have to tell the people, though, how to spell the end of that because it's not just Captain Edo. I believe it's Captain underscore capital E, lowercase d, capital O. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> You're looking for a check mark. You don't even know what your Twitter handle is. I have my people run my Twitter. Well, I don't blame you. I have mine do the same. This actually isn't even my voice. I paid somebody to pretend to be me on this program, and we've been 12 episodes in. Nobody's picked up on it. Well, I'm privileged to be in studio, even though I'm like I'm on a phone. You are in studio. This is a makeshift studio, though, however, because as I mentioned to the loyal listeners last week, had to move back home and have a revamped studio waiting for me in my childhood bedroom. Because of the time of this week's podcast, we moved the studio to the basement, set up on two makeshift 1963 dinner tables that you might use to watch TV dinners, and I have them propped up on two boxes, sitting next to my drum set to give a little bit more ambience to my voice, and you're a couch away from me. I could throw something and hit you, but I won't do that. He really is here, folks. He really is in the makeshift basement studio which maybe this will be the new home for the bridge we'll see how i feel 
What everybody wants to talk about is the NBA Finals. And when Game 1 happened, I was very excited to just talk to somebody about it. The Warriors ended up winning 108-100. to They went into overtime and outscored the Cavs 10-2. to LeBron James scored the only two points for Cleveland with, I believe, eight seconds left in the game or something like that. It was a cheap gimme layup, and that broke the streak of them not scoring. It was 29-19 to after the first quarter in favor of Cleveland. The Warriors came out and didn't shoot very well which I guess you could expect from both sides because they had that seven and eight day layoff respectively before game one of the finals, which I think is stupid, but something that the TV market loves to do. So both teams come out rusty, but then eventually you just assumed that the Warriors would pull back, and they did. They slowly got themselves back into the game, and we get an opportunity at the end of regulation for LeBron to send things into overtime if he's unable to do anything or to win the game. You had the ball in the guy's hands that you wanted, and it was time to see if LeBron had that foot-to-throat mentality that everyone on talk radio seems to think that he has. And as luck would have it, he ends up settling as usual. It was a play that actually reminded me of that SMU-UCLA game in the first round of the NCAA tournament this year when Bryce Alford, who had hit eight of his ten threes in the game up to that point, just wired a three from the left wing, just threw it up and hoped, and SMU ended up goaltending that and losing the game because that shot counted. That's what it looked like for LeBron. He has an opportunity to drive to the basket, to get a foul, to go to the free throw line. Instead, he, of course, settles for that left wing three-point fadeaway shot that clings off the basket right into the hands, however, of, I think it was Shumpert, and he ends up missing it in the corner at the buzzer. So the game goes into overtime, and then no one shows up. LeBron doesn't shoot until two and a half minutes are left in overtime, shoots a three and misses, got his rebound, shot a three and missed again. Steph Curry got them to the line a couple times at the beginning of overtime. After also having an opportunity to win the game late, blew past Kyrie Irving, goes to the basket for a finger roll, and Kyrie Irving blocks him in the back. His second block of the game, his first block was also a similar play where Steph just goes right around him, but then Kyrie Irving recovered for the block. Unfortunately for him, in overtime, he dives for the ball, makes some contact with Klay Thompson, ends up fracturing his kneecap, and just had surgery today, I believe, and he'll be out for at least three to four months So the Cavs will be without him for the remainder of the playoffs, which everyone assumed wrote them off completely. But what did you think about LeBron's decision at the end of game one to not take it to the basket and shoot the shot he did? And then the performance of Cleveland in general in that overtime for that loss? I think it was a pretty poor shot selection given that when he does take threes, he likes to take them from the top of the arc. He settled for this fadeaway, throw up a prayer. You knew the ball was going to be in your hands. Put yourself in a position on the court where you want to shoot from. They're barely giving the ball to people like Shumpert, JR. It was a two or three player show on their team. And it wasn't like that in game one, but they just don't seem like they're built for long games because they don't have depth, because their guys do play a lot of minutes. 
and I was not surprised that they kind of all turned invisible in the overtime period there. Yeah, and, and this is not to say that LeBron didn't have a great game before that, because he did. He put the team on his back which is something that people said he would need to do in this series. He ends up scoring 44 points. The only problem with that was he also shot 38 times. Curry did okay for the Warriors. He had 26 points. Andre Iguodala had 15 points off the bench, provided some great minutes against LeBron on the defensive end to really give them a spark. But for the Cavs, they just fell apart as a team in the second half. Three players scored for the Cavaliers in the second half and in overtime. That would include LeBron, Kyrie Irving, and Timothy Mozgov. J.R. Smith didn't show up after he hit the three-pointer at the buzzer to send the game into the half with the Cavs having a three-point lead. Iman Shumpert didn't do anything. Tristan Thompson had some rebounds but didn't do anything offensively. I don't even know if he scored in the finals yet. I don't know if he scored any points tonight, but he hasn't been anything of a nuisance on the offensive end at least. So that was the major problem and was the major problem that I said before the series would be for the Cavaliers is that if nobody else shows up, they're going to be in a lot of trouble. Kyrie ended up scoring 23. He had seven rebounds, four steals, and as I mentioned, two blocks in 44 minutes. Now, a lot of critics have been saying that maybe he shouldn't have played that long, but as I've been saying, who the hell else were they going to pass the ball to? I don't think that the amount of minutes that he played had anything to do with his freak accident. It was a non-contact injury, and his kneecap broke. It wasn't any ligament damage, MCL, ACL, a patella. This was his bone breaking. When I first saw it, I thought it was maybe a meniscus tear, something like Derrick Rose. But I don't think the minutes really have anything to do with kind of bad luck that Kyrie has run into his whole career. Yeah, I think he said we he had 12 injuries total up until this point. So unfortunately, he's been injury prone for his career. But I don't think the minutes mattered at all because he looked almost 100% on the floor, which was surprising because in the eight days leading up to game one, you swore that he was going to have to come out and play on crutches. And it's something that I don't think you could have sat him for an extended period of time because no one else was playing well. It was literally the LeBron and Kyrie show, and it looks like they were going to be able to steal game one from the Warriors because the Warriors really just played okay. I mean, they had okay games from Steph Curry, okay game from Klay Thompson, okay games from their supporting cast, but nobody really had a fantastic game, and they were still able to win after Cleveland should have taken away that game one victory from them. So going into game two... I thought that maybe they would come out and have this great resurgence and be that Golden State team that we've known and seen from the entire regular season in which they've only lost three games at home, but they lost tonight 95-93 in overtime again in a game which Cleveland again basically gave away at the end and gave the Warriors plenty of chances to win, but they were unable to do so. Now for LeBron, this was more of a game that you wanted to see from him and would love to see from him moving forward. 39 points, 16 boards, 11 assists, played 50 minutes, which could be a problem later in the series. But LeBron is more of a player that loves to pass He loves to find the open guy. He loves to make the best decisions. 
He loves to play more of a Magic Johnson-esque style game, and you could tell he was a little bit uncomfortable in Game 1 having to play that role of a scorer. It was surprising to see how much success he was able to have in tonight's game, once again putting the team on his back. He's been pretty dominant this finals with the triple-double that he's had. His shooting Thursday was poor. I think he was like 7 of 23 outside the paint, which is not good by any measure. And today, he is who he is. He's the best player in the world. You have to respect those results, but Golden State has not played well, and they still took LeBron, who's playing out of his mind, into overtime. And I think that is because with them, it's a two- or three-man game. Kyrie goes down by some miracle. Deladova steps up, and it becomes the Deladova show. I think the highlight for Golden State Game 1 was they shot poorly, but their trio of Green, Iguodala, and Curry could play and beat up LeBron. And going forward, they need to start shooting better to keep up with their defense. I mean, you can't say they defended a guy who dropped 40 points, but at least they still put pressure on all the other guys on the team to do something and to beat them. And that didn't happen game one. It shouldn't have happened tonight. I think they really used their game plan perfectly in the first game where it was basically if LeBron's going to beat us, he could score 40 points, he could do whatever he wants to do, but we can't allow anyone else on his team to beat us. And no one stepped up and they were able to take game one. Game two, unfortunately, you had Della Dova step up as one of the shining players for the Cavaliers. A little bit on offense, he had a couple floaters that we jokingly said if I was an NBA coach, and he shot that on my basketball team, I'd take him aside and sit him for a couple of minutes for looking like a fool. Jason Kidd-esque floaters in the lane, I guess you could say. He made a wide-open three. He had a couple of those garbage offensive points that you think in the back of your head, like, oh boy, that might come back to haunt us. But where he really shined was on the defensive end. He was a thorn in the side of Steph Curry for the entire game, and it was a game that Steph Curry quickly would want to forget because it was one of the worst shooting nights, at least from beyond the three-point arc in NBA Finals history. Curry finished with 19 points, which isn't awful. Might be for the MVP and probably the best player on the team, however. But he shot 5 from 23 from the field and an anemic 2 for 15 from 3. And he was 0 for 8 from the floor and 0 for 5 from 3. He also committed 4 turnovers and his 13 threes missed are the most missed in a single NBA Finals game. Now, Clay Thompson, on the other hand, was a spark for the Warriors, and he came out and looked like he was going to have one of those prolific 30-plus point quarters like he's had a couple times throughout the season. He had a great first quarter, but he got into foul trouble. They had to sit him for a little while, and that cooled the momentum a little bit, but he was single-handedly keeping them in the game at some points. He finishes with 34 points, but also from three, he goes four for 12, and down the stretch near the end of regulation and in overtime, I don't remember him scoring in the last several minutes of the game, so he really didn't have an impact when things mattered, unfortunately, for the Warriors. But what did you think of Steph Curry's shooting night because as I mentioned on Twitter I think tomorrow and even some tonight but tomorrow in the sports media world he should be verbally crucified for the whole day 
I think you need to respect Steph. He came out and said, well, I was trying to find my shot, and the only way I was going to find it was to keep shooting. But stop. Just do something. Feed Clay Thompson. <laughs> what are you doing? I understand you're the MVP, but you had nothing going. And maybe it was a little bit of who is this Della Dover character? Like, who does he think he is to guard me? And so he was just chucking things up on him. But he was horrendous. I mean, we were talking about how the Warriors weren't even running set. He was just coming down the floor, top of the key, and shooting threes. And nobody was there to rebound. The shot selection was poor, and his pass selection was equally poor, because the only time he went back to Thompson, who had kept him in the whole game, was when it didn't matter, and he gave him that ugly bounce pass that Schumper threw out of bounds. It's something that the Warriors do on offense when they're clicking on all cylinders where you'll see someone miss a shot. They'll get the rebound, throw it to an outlet guy, and they'll run up the floor. And before you know it, they have a three-pointer up within five or six seconds of the shot clock. And if it goes, the crowd has the momentum. Everyone goes crazy in the stadium. And it's something that they love to do with their offense. They're very fast-paced, run-and-gun. If they're all shooting very well, they have no problem taking that open three, and Steve Kerr lets it happen. But when you're not shooting well, and when you say after the game that all game long you just never felt comfortable shooting, you didn't really get a feel for anything throughout the entire game, you just have to keep shooting to get out of it, well, yes, that's true. But when the game is on the line and you have somebody that's been shooting very well in Clay Thompson and you have other shooters on your team, don't be afraid to set them up because opposing teams still are going to think that you're going to shoot that final shot. So the Cavs were double teaming, triple teaming, and he's just trying to dribble out of it. And there were some shots. He just chucked them up there. And if he was playing a pickup game at the park, they tell him to go home. Get off our court. We're not playing with you anymore if you're going to be shooting like that. And the dribble and drive was effective for him. There were a few times where he was driving, looking to draw contact and get an and one. I don't understand why he didn't drive more, why he didn't pass the ball more. Things a point guard would do. And they sat him for a long time between the end of the third quarter and the beginning of the fourth. And usually a guy like him is going to catch his legs and just come up lights out, which was the game that they needed today was everybody just rain threes and be lights out if they wanted to break the spirit of LeBron James and the Cavaliers. Dribbling and driving was working, but that was about it. And he didn't make any adjustments. Kerr is obviously not making any adjustments on the bench either. I'd like to get your thoughts. If you were coaching that team, what would you do differently? Because they practically gave it away. They had Cleveland on the ropes and they allowed them to come back. Well, I wouldn't necessarily go too extreme, but I would definitely say that they would need to start running offensive sets and not necessarily slow the ball down, which is what Cleveland wanted them to do and tried to do and successfully did all game. They slowed the ball down on their offensive end and would run their shot clock down and try to disrupt that fast-paced game that the Warriors like to do, especially guarding Steph Curry after a made basket because they like to throw it to him and start running down they'll put like a dummy defender on him so they have to pass to somebody else and it slows it down but the Warriors I think are best when they have quick ball movement and they get the open shot from that there wasn't a lot of action in the post they were really living and dying by the three really badly they didn't have a lot of open shots there was a lot of contested shots even if they did have three pointers and it was a lot of one-on-one hero ball where they would just try to do things themselves and throw it up over a defender and then like you said it was so much one and done nobody was down there to get the rebound it was just up and back on 
on defense. And it's not like they don't have a deep bench. If it was Cleveland and they ran into this trouble, then you would really be in a hard place because who are you going to draw a play up for? Iman Shumpert, JR, Mozgov? I don't want to be doing that, but you got guys on your team that you can trust and have made big shots in the past. Down the stretch, we were a little perplexed because Steph Curry ends up finally making a basket to put them up. Well, first it was Delavadova makes two free throws with 11 seconds left to put the Cavaliers up by one, I believe. And he was almost going to be the hero because LeBron had a couple of opportunities. And this this is what was going to be a great setup for us as people that love to troll on LeBron James. He, of course, has an opportunity to win the game. It's tied. He finally drives to the basket. He goes left. He's bumped a little bit when he first starts his drive by Iguodala and then gets to the basket among three Warrior defenders and gets off a lefty layup. It's just too strong off the glass, so the game goes into overtime. So we're going nuts because already here we go. LeBron, that awful shot at Game 1, he finally drives in Game 2, which he should be doing. He doesn't get a call to go to the line. He misses the layup. We're going overtime. Steph Curry's going to go out for 63 points somehow in overtime. Well, he doesn't, but he does end up making a layup that I believe was the tying basket that did send the game into overtime. But then at the end, Della Vadova ends up getting fouled, going for a rebound, goes to the line with, I believe, 11 seconds left, nails two free throws to put the Cavs up one. Steph Curry gets the ball off an inbounds play. He does a little bit of a dribble and shoots a fadeaway jumper from the corner and just shoots a complete air ball. LeBron gets the ball on the rebound. He's fouled. He goes one of two from the line, missing the second, allowing the Warriors one more chance with four seconds left. Steph Curry gets it, tries to bounce pass it ahead to Klay Thompson for a potential game-winning three-pointer, and Amon Shumpert knocks the ball out of bounds. The game is over. So it, it was not a great ending for... Steph Curry when the Cavs did give them opportunities to steal another game and I was surprised that they went to him at the end. I think if you're a Warriors fan, if Warriors fans exist somewhere on the East Coast, you're really disappointed in the fact that one of Curry's many misses went in the cylinder, rattled around, and then popped back out in regulation and Spates missed that dunk. That's five points right there that they could have had, would have avoided sending the game to overtime, and instead, here we are. They go to overtime, they lose, which is, you know, the fickle nature of sports. Guys step up. You thought they would be able to just break the Cavaliers' spirit and go up 2-0, go to Cleveland and feel good about themselves. The Cavaliers were resilient. Certain players on their team played to expectation. Other guys filled the role of stars that are absent. Now we're going to Cleveland. Golden State feels terrible about themselves, as they should. Their shooting performance today from a lot of important guys was terrible. Who knows, right? Does Cleveland have the momentum now? Will Golden State be able to come out and shoot the lights out? Will Curry find his shot in Game 3? And we're going to have a series now where it all comes down to, are these teams going to not make mistakes? And are they going to get hot at the right time? I can't expect Deladova to have a great game again. I would be stunned if he did. I'd be stunned if J.R. Smith did. And the Cavs are desperate. I mean, they let Mike Miller on the floor for a few minutes. He shot the basketball during the game. He didn't make it, but he shot the basketball. He got in the box score. 
Golden State needs to find themselves and find their shots, I guess. I don't know what they're doing. Losing this game at home, all of a sudden you tie the game. You force regulation because you get LeBron to drive to the basket and he gets blocked. Yeah, they end up shooting 8 for 35 from 3 as a team, which is horrific. But they did go on that 15-4 to run to end the game and send it into overtime and again give them hope. Because in this game, it's not necessarily surprising to see a performance that Della Vadova had in this game for him to basically shut Steph Curry down while he was guarding him, be the spark to lead the team when Kyrie Irving goes down with an injury. Because we see this all the time. A team loses its star player and then somebody else steps up because they have no pressure on them. The worst they can do is what they normally do, but the best they could do is outperform their normal whatever they do during a game and really show up and be a catalyst for the team, and Della Vadova was amazing. This game, I guess, reminds me a lot of when LeBron made that game winner against the Bulls on Mother's Day, and you just had that feeling of like, oh, this is over. <laughs> they have no shot. I just think in my head now, if Curry is awful again on Tuesday night, it's done. They're coming back to Oracle Arena in a body bag because you see this all the time, right? Even though LeBron is pouty and whiny and has been criticized by myself many times for being mentally weak, I thought they were going to roll over and show their belly today with Kyrie being done and no love and all this stuff. And they were resilient, and I was stunned by that. They have all the momentum right now, and if he can lead this team and keep fighting, I'm sure he's going to drop at least 35 in Game 3 because the Warriors aren't really stopping him. They're stopping the supporting cast. The guys in Golden State need to step up or else this is over. I mean, this game gave me the feeling of, like, I just want to shut this off and go to bed because it was sloppy, disgusting basketball, and it was the outcome I didn't want to see. The only thing you have going for you if you're a Warriors fan is that your team still hasn't played to its potential nor exceeded it in these first two games. So you have to think they've played under par now for the first two games of the finals. If they can just play average in game three and game four, and if they could play even above average, you have to think that they win because both these games went into overtime and they didn't play well. So looking at it that way, you just hope that they're able to turn this series around kind of like they did against Memphis when they go down 2-1 and it's like okay let's start playing now and they come back and, and win that series when it looked like it might be a series but as Mike Wilbon said tonight during his interview he had a great point when he said the Warriors sometimes play quote loosey-goosey and by that they're very cute at some points during the game. They do all that passing and try to really work their offense. Sometimes that's nice, but sometimes they don't shoot the best shot that they could have because they're too worried about making that extra pass. Or as Eddie mentioned before, they love coming up the floor and just shooting as soon as they have the opportunity to, and no one's even back yet to get an offensive rebound. Sometimes they just get into this mode like, we'll be all right. We've been here before. We'll come back. We're used to coming down and having to come back from behind. It's stuff that they're used to throughout the season that they've been able to overcome. But this is the NBA Finals. You're not going to have as many opportunities to do that, and you have to be able to not put yourself in that position because eventually the well is going to be dry. And tonight was a perfect example of that. I think I don't feel as confident in the Warriors as I did 
yesterday because of this. I was really hoping that they would be dominant tonight and just go up 2-0 and keep moving forward with all the momentum because I want to see the good guys win. To me, that's the people who aren't on the Cavaliers. I think if I had one piece of advice, not that I'm an NBA coach by any means, it would be to play a bit more of a drive-and-kick game or try to penetrate on a dribble. And then later in the game, go to more of those jump shots, open threes, because it was very crowded around the arc today, fourth quarter, overtime, and there was nobody inside for Golden State, which is why they weren't getting rebounds for their horrendous shot. They got a lot of rebounds. But a big part of their failures is late in the game, those balls were going straight to Cavalier players. They were coming up the floor and putting up bricks as well, but they weren't capitalizing on things the way they normally would. I thought that this could have been a game that Golden State went out and won by 35 and just put it away, and then it would have been interesting to see whether or not Cleveland would have rolled over when they went home for their first game, since this is actually the first game that the Cleveland organization has won in the finals. I think they were 0-5 up to this game, so hooray for the city of Cleveland. I'm more concerned than I have been before. Last week I was saying that they had it all the way because it's the best team versus the best player and that their style of basketball is going to overcome what one player can do. And we saw tonight that that one player busted his ass and everybody else followed him, even though it was two other guys that scored baskets. That's apparently all they need. So now, since you're here, I think it was interesting a couple of days ago, you mentioned that one of those flyover New York radio shows that you listen to every morning or afternoon brought up the point about, is LeBron James the most scrutinized player that we've ever come across as far as the expectations that have been put on him for his entire career, whether it be in social media, whether it be in the sports media in general, has he been the most pressured player that we've ever seen up until this point? And I thought about this question for about 14 seconds today to see if I can come up with a rebuttal. But since we last spoke, I was wondering if you were able to come up with anyone else that's been under this big of a microscope for his entire career, where everything he does is scrutinized and criticized and other Z-E-D words. I don't know if there's anyone who's definitely been put under the same microscope and the same pressure as James. I think there are some people who the heat is being turned up on them, again, particularly in basketball. I don't know why I feel like all the guys that are so heavily criticized are all basketball players. To me, whenever LeBron fails, it's, oh, Magic would have done that. Jordan would have done that. Bird would have done that. Whoever, right? Insert Hall of Famer here. And the conversation is not like that for baseball, for football. I don't talk to people about hockey, but I'm sure that doesn't happen much in hockey either. I think that a few other stars that come to mind of, well, they're good at this, but they did this poorly. The one big glaring person that sticks out to me, I guess because it's fresh, is Chris Paul. Because this guy, he's another one who everybody's like, oh, he's the best point guard in the league. Oh, my God. And where is he tonight? Sitting at home? Maybe sit on a private he's, uh, he's actually in the spare room in the down here. I was going to bring him out, kind of like a you know a Jerry Springer esque or Mari show, but we can keep him in there if you don't want to talk to him. No, after they embarrass themselves against the Rockets, I don't want to speak All to right. him. All right, well, forget it. I'll shoot him a text real quick. But you know, I, I think somebody in football who I personally scrutinize all the time and almost vilify is Peyton Manning. You know my feelings on him. And I just don't even think that even with his shortcomings that when you talk about, oh, they lost, 
you don't go, you know what, Tom Brady would have made that throw. Or, oh, Big Ben, he would have ran that ball in or something like that, right, and compare him to other Super Bowl-winning quarterbacks of this era or throw back to Hall of Famers who Brett Favre, he would have X. And for some reason, basketball is just something about individual achievements, I guess, and accomplishments. And when they were talking about that, it almost kind of made me feel for LeBron a little bit. And then I realized, nah, you know what? You went to Miami to play with Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade. Eat a bag. <laughs> Thankfully, you didn't crash your car. I was trying to go through every sport to come up with any of those comparisons. The only thing I could think of in baseball was remember when there was 13 or 14 amazing shortstops playing at the exact same time who were up-and-comers, where you had A-Rod with Seattle, Jeter with the Yankees, Nomar with Boston. I'm missing a couple. I know there was a couple more where it was like, who's going to be the next best shortstop? I mean, it was nothing compared to what happens now, but it was uh, who's who of who's going to be the next face of baseball and most of the people that were on the list that people thought would have made it fell off the earth. And then Nomar did eventually, too, and it just became Jeter and A-Rod and the rest is history. But I was thinking back to when the home run records were being broken in the late 90s with Sammy Sosa and McGuire, and then when Barry Bonds was doing it in his career in the 2000s. And I don't remember there ever being any pressure on those guys to do it. So as far as baseball is concerned, I don't really think there's any of that. Like Bryce Harper is not getting compared to, oh, Joe DiMaggio would have got that hit. And Mike Trout's not getting the, well, you know, Mickey Mantle would have drove in that run. Baseball seems to me to be a sport where the records are more or less, you get more recognition once you break the record than you do while you're going for it. I mean, you do that as a fan for your favorite teams. You know who's going to be the guy that's going to strike out like, oh, God, Curtis is up to bat. He's not going to get a hit here. He's going to strike out. But as far as the national media is concerned, I can't think of anyone in baseball that's been scapegoated for not coming through in the clutch. Yeah, I think with A-Rod in particular, he had all those stretches of postseasons with the Yankees where he was dreadful, as did a lot of other big guys on the Yankees like Cano and Teixeira and Granderson. Swisher. All the guys that just disappeared and broke our hearts fall after fall after fall since 2009. But I don't know if going forward he'll still carry that, oh, this guy is bomb when it comes to October. I don't know if he would carry that the same way that LeBron carries some of those oh, you're a choke artist, or you'd love to pass the ball. Again, I think those kids, there's three faces of baseball right now. It's Harper, Trout, and Kershaw, and I'm surprised I named all three of them considering I try to watch as little baseball as possible anymore. That was impressive because I didn't know who you were going for the third one, but you were right. Kershaw is already on the precipice of becoming like, mm, what's wrong with your legacy because you have yet to advance out of the first round of the playoffs, even though it's only been three seasons for you. And it's the same thing with Harper and with Trout. That's, oh, this is your third year in the league. You put up all these big regular season numbers, but you're still not getting the results. I think maybe four years from now when those guys are our age, which is horrifying to think about, if they still haven't won a World Series, people would be like, oh, geez, I guess we really thought they were going to be something special, and they weren't. But I don't think you'd have that comparison of, oh, give me this guy and put him in Bryce Harper's place and he would have done it. 
I don't know whether or not it's because there's nine guys and the pitching staff on a baseball team to where position players usually don't have as much pressure for not winning a team a World Series per se, because there's been a ton of Hall of Fame players that have never won a World Series. What's funny about you mentioned A-Rod when people rip A-Rod, there's always some guy in the background going, yeah, but in 09, he basically won them the World Series with what he did. So he was basically able to erase all of his failures up to that point and almost was given a pass because of what he did in that 09 series. In baseball, it hasn't been bad up until those three players that you mentioned because I think with the advancement in social media and Twitter especially – where people just expect the world from athletes. In a couple of years, you're going to start seeing that. Well, you know, they never did this in the postseason. They never do that. Or look at his average when it comes to that point. Football is kind of getting worse with that. Especially you mentioned Peyton Manning. He's been getting it a lot worse. I think if he played maybe 20 years ago, no one would have really cared too much because as history tells the stories, there were some quarterbacks that were great but couldn't really do much in the postseason. The same with teams in general. But again, in football, it's still not as bad. I guess some people do still say, well, he's no Jerry Rice or he's no whoever quarterback because with quarterbacks, it's harder. There's a lot more names you can pick as, a well, he's no Dan Marino. And somebody will go, what did Dan Marino ever do? And then you just get into this huge discussion of, oh, God, why did I even bring this conversation about? But in football now, I think you hit it on the head. The biggest guy is probably Peyton Manning and then almost every other quarterback in the league that hasn't won a Super Bowl. Tony Romo is a big one. Tony Romo probably gets shit on the most out of any of the quarterbacks including Peyton Manning there's not too much with wide receivers which I never understood for example Andre Johnson who's never really done anything is perhaps going to be into the Hall of Fame and is still looked at as a top 10 receiver but was never able to win anything with the Texans because of his quarterbacks I think the quarterback position is definitely the biggest one in the NFL but again it's not as brutal as it is in the NBA, it seems. When I think about Andre Johnson in particular, and thinking about how he's a borderline Hall of Famer, quote-unquote, I've started to really try to rally the anti-AJ campaign to smear his good name, because he never did anything ever. So I'm really trying to convince people that he's a bum. He's, but he's actually is, here, too, in the, in the spare room, so I shouldn't <laughs> bring him out. No, isolate them all. Keep them away from me. I think with football, what becomes difficult about saying, oh, give me this guy over this guy, is there's so much minutiae in football, and that's what people love to debate when it comes to things about, oh, this running back wasn't very good, but he could have been because his line, or, oh, this guy, his regular season stats were ridiculous, but he couldn't win the big one, but that defense let him down, though. Or, oh, this receiver, he, you know, he had the vertical jump and he had the the speed, but he could, uh, you know, couldn't do X, right? And I think that's where where football becomes so difficult, and maybe why football players don't catch as much heat for not performing as basketball, because maybe people look at basketball as just like, oh, they're just chucking up a ball in a circle, like anybody could do that, when there is just as much minutia and nuance to uh, basketball as there is to football. I think the similarities between Peyton and LeBron are most glaring because of the way that. Peyton came up and he was going to be the number one overall pick and ESPN or you know the worldwide leader if we have to go back and edit that out 
they love the Manning family to no end. And well, so not build, not Cooper, no, well, but the the other three they love. Cooper still gets he's in the spare room too. Well, he's been in there for a couple of years before I even had the show. We should actually bring him out here, the poor guy. But they just love them and built them up to be. Oh, Peyton's going to be something special, and so is Eli. I think because it took so long to see a kind of return on that investment that people were like, oh, I don't know about this guy. And I think that was the LeBron issue, too, is, oh, he's built up to be this big, odd-like figure in the NBA. He is the best player in the world. You have to respect his game. I don't respect Peyton's game enough because of all the postseason failures. I think with football, there are guys who are definite winners, and it's very clear. I think if you're not a quarterback, you're off the hook when it comes to that type of putting people on pedestals and comparisons with running backs and different things. If you're not a quarterback, I think you're okay. And I don't necessarily know why that is, but quarterbacks now are viewed specifically just based on championships is is what it seems like. And what you've done in your career doesn't mean as much if you don't have the Super Bowl rings to back it up. And that's where Peyton Manning has run into so much trouble because he only has one Super Bowl ring. I think Brett Favre, as far as the social media theory and fire and brimstone and whatever else they bring upon these guys, he kind of lucked out because he got out, I think, at like just the right time. Like If he had played five years later in his career, he would have been crucified. And he kind of missed the boat on getting as crucified on social media as Peyton Manning has done. But when it comes to quarterbacks, it's all about the rings. And that's very unfortunate in a sport where it's so hard to even get to the Super Bowl, nonetheless win it. But that's just the culture of how things are now. And unfortunately, that's where the standards have been set. If you don't have the rings as a quarterback, you're not going to get the praise from anyone. Brett Favre should wake up every day. Thanking his lucky stars, he didn't play football five years later than he did. If he did, all those pictures he sent to that Jets cheerleader or masseuse or whoever she was would have been all over Instagram. (laughs) And it looks like somebody had a little bit too much last night, Johnny. But when it comes to Peyton, and to bring this back to all sports, is by having only one Super Bowl win... He's failing to set himself apart from people who win the Super Bowl every year, right? There always needs to be a champion. And so he's in the same crowd, ring-wise, as Russell Wilson, Steve Young, Joe Flacco, guys who are there but not, right? And Favre, one ring, guys who are there but not. I mean, Kurt Warner has one. Yeah, we could go down the list with quarterbacks that have one ring, and we'll be pretty disappointed because one is Trent Dilfer, and my Lord, help us. (laughs) And so it's really about, well, really, that guy has achieved the same thing as you, and I think that that's the problem with when people look at LeBron as well. Other people have done more than you ring-wise, but his stats are obscene. NSFW, some of the achievements that he's accomplished before the age of 30, where other guys it took them their whole career, and yeah, basketball has changed, different era, all that stuff. So I guess maybe that's the issue in other sports as well. It's about setting yourself apart or trying to get in the company of people who are definite Hall of Famers and kind of on your caliber, right? Peyton is far greater than some of those one-ring quarterbacks. LeBron James is far greater than some of current players that he is around that may make the Hall of Fame. But he doesn't always look like it or feel like it. 
and this 24-7 media coverage with the memes of his pouty faces and his cramps and his whining doesn't help the image, and I guess that's where that whole conversation about him always being under the microscope has come. But I have no sympathy for him again. I mean, you had to create that super team to win your first championship. I have no sympathy for that. You also needed Ray Allen to win your second, but that's for another day as well. I think NBA has made that transition now to the how many championships have you won, what have you done for me lately type deal. But I think it's interesting that that really didn't happen until maybe five years ago, 10 years ago at most. And I don't know whether or not the greatest basketball player of all time lucked out that he was playing in the league and was kind of given the keys to the kingdom of the NBA from the best players. I mean, of course, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, those guys, they played against each other. And when they retired and got out of the league, that's when Jordan was making his move to the top of the NBA and first started winning those championships. So it got to the point where he was the top player and those guys were out of the game. He had separated from them, but there was no comparisons to like, oh, Magic did this or, oh, Larry did that. It was, oh, Michael's doing this. And I don't know whether that was because he was the first person to do what he was doing. That might have something to do with it. And since he set the bar so high now, you're able to have comparisons to what he did, whereas he was just passing everybody and you're just going, wow, he's doing everything. Early in the 2000s, guys like Kobe Bryant coming through, the comparisons would start with, oh, is he better than Jordan? Have we ever seen this before? And I don't know whether or not it's because we're in a new age of media and if we don't know about those conversations that happen because they're not as well publicized. But I can't imagine in the 80s that that stuff would get published where it's like, is Magic Johnson just as good as Jerry West? Were there those comparisons happening in the public media or were they just happening in the bar while people were sitting with those players having a whiskey sour talking about if they think they could beat so-and-so one-on-one i just don't think that was on everyone's mind back then where now you can't take more than two steps and turn on any sports channel without hearing about is lebron better than x is lebron better than y and it's a little unfortunate for him he supposedly doesn't pay any attention to it as he shouldn't but at this point he he basically can write his own destiny you lose these finals to golden state you're going to be two and four all time in the finals that's just not a number that you're going to want he's a historian of the game he knows about the game of basketball you know he doesn't want that on his resume we'll see if he can make a change i think what people loved about mike was the brand that he was able to build, that he was a mean guy on the court. Some of the things that he said that you and I love to say to one another. You should probably not the, say that on here. Kids can look it up. The way that he carried himself off the court, the shoes, the clothes, I think the attitude that he played with, all those things are what people really enjoyed about him. It was the look, the brand, and then Space Jam. That also helped. But if you want to look at his character flaws, there are many. And the gambling, and he was so profane. Perhaps and for, missing two years in the NBA for gambling. <laughs> so arrogant to the point where he thought he could play baseball. I mean, get this guy a tennis racket, right, Jim Rome? Hey, uh, Jim, I'm not giving you the $5 for that. I'm sorry. 
when you look at LeBron, right, his brand is the complete opposite. I mean, he's endorsing Samsung S whatever phones, and his kids are drawing doodles on a picture of his face. He's in that stupid movie with that guy from Saturday Night Live and that Amy Schumer. And I think where he loses me is he just acts like a person that is not someone who I think, wow, you're cool. It's not cool to like you, where everybody wanted to be like Mike. And so I don't know why our generation is so obsessed with these comparisons as to who is better and worse and cooler and not as cool and blah, blah, blah as this. I still think if you're making a this is my starting five for all NBA or this is my five to beat all, it needs to be on that list which I don't think anyone else that we've mentioned in any other sport would be on their all-sport team. I don't know if I put A-Rod on my third base of all baseball players. I definitely don't pick Peyton. I'm sorry. I definitely don't pick Peyton. It's unfortunate that as a populace as a whole, we can't just enjoy the fact that we're never going to watch a player like LeBron James in our lifetime. Like I was too young to really appreciate Michael Jordan. I think six, seven, eight, when he was winning those last couple championships. I actually have the 97, 98 Bulls championship VHS tape. If you want to pop that in, we could watch them beat the Jazz, but it's getting a little late. I have to say that for another time, but it is amazing to step back and think what he's doing as an athlete in the game of basketball. And when we have children, we'll be able to tell them like, yeah, I watched him play and he was good. I mean, he did come up short sometimes I think maybe we're just expecting a little bit too much of him expecting him to always come through and always be this amazing demigod that we've created for him to fill the shoes of but people want to nitpick people are never going to say that he's the best and that might be true but these should be conversations we have when his career is winding down in seven, eight, nine years, whenever that may be, and we know more about where his final numbers can stand, then you could have those conversations. So that's where we are now as a society, and he is under the biggest microscope we've ever seen. I agree with that completely. Did he put a little of that on himself? Yes. Did the sports media put a lot of that on him? Yes. Is he maybe not doing the best with it? Who knows? Here we are again with another NBA Finals. The lights are on him. He's, in a way, lucked out a little bit because he's a little of an underdog. Maybe not so much as he was a couple days ago, but there was still that underdog stigma that people were giving him, even though he's the best player in the world. And we'll see what happens. But there's going to be a ton to talk about for the rest of these NBA Finals, and a ton of people want to weigh in on LeBron. That's what brings home the bacon. He's the sport. He's the face of the sport. And he's got an opportunity to add or subtract to his legacy when these NBA Finals end in a couple weeks. I think for me personally, to win me over, not that anyone cares. Well, I know how to win you over, but we'll keep that off air. Not that LeBron James is losing sleep over me not being a fan. He might need to do the whole, like, complete heel turn and go to, like, Des Bryant levels of arrogance on the court and that kind of energy. Because to go back to what we were talking about before, I'm laughing at you when you're driving to the basket and passing to Iman Shumpert. (laughs) And I'm laughing at you when you go and you get blocked by Draymond Green, who I had no idea who that man was until like three months ago. That's right. And I'm laughing at you missing that layup because you always miss that layup at the end of regulation. Until he does that complete 180 and becomes the villain and becomes unstoppable, 
I'm not going to respect him. And I don't know why that is, but he had a ridiculous game tonight. Anybody else had the type of game he had tonight, and we would be singing their praises all week. Win or lose. Win or lose. And he's having that game, and they won, carrying his team, and I'm still saying, let's put together a montage of all the times you've passed to a teammate for the last shot (laughs) and see how tough you look. He set himself up to have a horrendous sports radio week where people would just tear him apart until game three. Can you believe he missed that layup? Jordan would have hit that layup. Can you believe he passed that ball? Jordan might have passed it, but Steve Kerr would have made that shot. What's he doing playing with him on Shumpert? Oh, man, it would have been great. But as I mentioned to start off the show, the real blame of Game 2 to bring this all full circle is Steph Curry needs to be verbally crucified for his wrongdoings in Game 2. As the MVP, this is something that comes with the territory. People should hold him responsible for the loss, just like he's holding himself responsible for the loss. So real quick, the only other thing we have to talk about, and I know Eddie is excited about this because this grown man... This member of society almost sheds a tear watching this sporting event happen. We had the first Triple Crown winner in 37 years finally breaking the streak. American Pharaoh, Victor Espinoza, was the Triple Crown jockey for this. This was his third time trying, the third time being the charm. We heard that about 34 times on TV. His last chance came with Google Chrome, oh, California Chrome, last year. We had this opportunity to watch this since 1978 when Affirmed won the last Triple Crown. 13 times there's been an opportunity to have a Triple Crown happen with the horse winning the first two races, but coming up short. 23 times this has happened total. 23 opportunities to have the Triple Crown and come up short. American Pharaoh finished the one-and-a-half-mile race with a winning time of 2.26.65, holding off frosted and keen ice. While the race was exciting... I think the best part was when the race finishes, they have the mics turned up very high, and in a fit of enthusiasm and excitement, Victor Espinoza just goes, holy shit, which is what I'm sure 65% of Americans are thinking after we watched American Pharaoh win the Triple Crown. Try not to lose your composure when you're talking about this, but go ahead. Well, it was the Latin passion that really overtook Espinoza as he went to the winner's circle. You too. And just, the emotions, too much. I relate to that greatly, yeah. I was just so excited when we were watching the race. I think part of it was because it's so special because it only happens once a year in this five-week period, which means spring is coming to an end, summer is coming. And last year, I fell in love with California Chrome, and I know you and I talked about that horse a lot. And I really, really loved that horse because I just had never seen one that was so dominant before. Not that I'm a big horse race watcher, but I've been watching the Triple Crown races at least for the past maybe 10 years, which is kind of weird that a 15-year-old who couldn't gamble would watch Triple Crown races. But anyway, I really liked that horse, and I was amazed by the way California Chrome had won Kentucky Derby and then the Preakness, and I thought he was going to win the Belmont last year. And so I was excited about him had my heart ripped out by that horse. Then racing season comes back around, and they're like, oh, it's American Pharaoh, same trainer as California Chrome, same jockey. And I was like, oh, great, I've seen this before. He's just going to rip my heart out at the Belmont. Perfect. He won the 
Kentucky Derby in dominant fashion, much like California Chrome, and I'm thinking deja vu all over again. The Preakness, it was raining, and he still blew everybody away. We're coming to the Belmont, and I'm like, oh, I don't even care. I don't want to get excited because I'm thinking, oh, if California Chrome couldn't do it, I'll never see a Triple Crown winner. And it's a cool thing, but I, who cares? They're horses, right? They're animals. They are running a race that they don't even comprehend for our enjoyment. Now, I interviewed American Pharaoh actually this morning. He said he was very anxious before the race, but he was able to pull through. And the sugar cubes that he had after the race never tasted sweeter. He licked your hand and went, and that was about it. That's the close I got. A lot of nays, and I didn't know whether that meant no in a different pirate language. So it was a difficult interview, but I think I got it. But I just was so excited to see it happen for myself, and I was excited that it was with you and with Joey and... You know, we had been so excited last year for California Chrome to win. It's one of those things that you can look back and say, wow, I remember where I was when I saw that. And I don't know if people will see a Triple Crown winner in their life or if it'll mean something to them. I think going forward, looking at how it was Seattle Slew won and then affirmed back-to-back years and then no Triple Crown winner until American Pharaoh, I don't know how I would feel if a horse won the Triple Crown next year, too. Oh, wow, we had two in a row, and would it feel less special? Would it feel just as special? I don't know if I would get the same kind of butterflies as I did when I saw Pharaoh kind of making that second turn and starting to pull away from everybody else. When I saw that, I was just thinking, wow, I hope another horse doesn't come up and really ruin everybody's day by winning here, because this is unbelievable that this is going to happen. And like I had posted on Facebook, there were a few tears in my eyes. I, I don't know why. I was so moved by the moment. Might have been that call, too. That was a very good call. I don't know the broadcaster's name, but he had a great call for it, screaming, very excited. And it was just one of those moments. It was kind of surreal, like, wow, this is happening, and this is a first for me. I know nothing about horses, but I think it'll be really cool, and I hope that someday they breed American Pharaoh, and he becomes an amazing sire and all that stuff, and has little horse babies that become Triple Crown winners, or at least participants, because when you watch that race and they go, oh, this horse's father was American Pharaoh, you're like, wow, that horse that really captivated me for five weeks in 2015, and maybe I know I would root for any that he would father and that's a whole weird process that we won't get into but something else the kids can google <laughs> right well he's he's gonna have a pretty great life from here on out a lot of food a lot of pats on the back a lot of uh sexy time but it was exciting to see and it's great for the sport now everybody can go back to carrying on living their lives after pretending that they care about horse racing for five weeks just like now people are going to get involved with the fifa women's World Cup, which just recently started, I believe it started today. Germany beat the Ivory Coast 10 nothing for a fun throw in there. I think that's what makes horse racing so special is you don't have to follow it year in and year out. Like, you could pick your favorite horse out of the lineup for the Kentucky Derby and just read his or her little bio about, oh, they won the Breeders' Cup, they won the Arkansas Derby, and all these other big horse races that I'm familiar with because I sort of follow the Derby because I like to gamble on the Derby. But it's special, and I think that it's fun that people can still get into it. I mean, I'm excited to go to work on Tuesday and talk to my kids. Did you see the horse? And they'll probably tell me, Mr. What horse? We should probably wrap this up because people are going to get sick of hearing our opinions and wonder why we're sitting four feet away from each other and couldn't get one other microphone to not sound like simpletons. 
Well, I'm happy to be on. Thanks for having me. And I hope that people kind of enjoyed our wackiness. People who know us will obviously enjoy this because they'll be like, wow, this is like going to the bar with you guys. Uh, people who don't know us will probably be like, oh, I hope that Puerto Rican guy shuts up. And then, wow, we have to go to the bar after listening to these guys. Jesus. But hey, if you guys want to come out with us, just uh, put something in the comments. Those comments, of course, can be found on www.londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E.com. You can follow me on that same Twitter handle, at London Bridge. You can follow Eddie at his Twitter handle, at... Captain underscore Edo. Capital E, lowercase d capital O. You can also listen to this podcast on iTunes under the bridge for your long, long train rides to and from work. It's also on the Stitcher app as well. Next week, there will be more NBA Finals to talk about. LeBron will either be the hero or the GOAT, no matter what happens. Maybe get into some Stanley Cup. Maybe get into some women's soccer. Uh, I don't know about the women's soccer, but uh, I don't know about the Stanley Cup either. We'll see what happens. Somebody had a little bit too much last night, Johnny. And whatever else I might happen to have up my sleeve, on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.